this episode of Talking Ghana. Talking Ghana is a podcast devoted to the left, right, and center of Ghanaian politics. For each episode, I join my friends Mami, Papa, Nelson, and Oliver to offer our take on the key issues and themes shaping Ghanaian politics. My name is Otin, shorthand for Kotnaum Telechampo. Many of you will know me as a lawyer and a human rights advocate. To that resume, you may add a development critic. I am very excited and privileged to be one of your co-hosts for this podcast. Thank you for sharing your precious time with us. I'm in the yes. mood for a fight. I've been I've been inspired by Comrade Papa. Oh. <laughs> so what are we doing? I, I don't know. Do we have some time to now come because we need to set the context and explain how we ended up in the one this whole constituency mess. You know, with the creation of the regions and all that. Uh, uh, is that what we are doing for today? No. No, but I thought we were I mean, talking definitely, about uh, definitely Oliver cannot live without talking about that. So Charlie. <laughs> That would be Oliver's take. If there's anything else, we can talk about it. And then we can reserve that for later. We can do something in 30 minutes. Maybe we should just um, reflect on the election. Okay. Uh, (laughs) All right. (laughs) Welcome back, listeners, to uh, the post-election, the second post-election episodes of post <laughs> okay, let me see if I can give it a shot. Yeah, do, do, do that. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can come in. <laughs> uh, so, welcome back to Talking Ghana. Uh, today, we will follow up on our previous discussion with Cordillo uh, by taking stock of the election. Uh, so just to give a bit of context, uh, the Electoral Commission uh, following voting has declared the president, the incumbent president, uh, President Nana Ado Dankwaikufado, uh, the winner of the presidential election. Um, there, there, there has been uh, uh, some issues with the uh, opposition rejecting the outcome, uh, but uh, it's been uh, a closer election. Uh, and then in the parliamentary, the NPP and the uh, NDC are in a dead heat. Uh, so it's a split parliament. Uh, and with uh, that has put the spotlight uh, on the independent candidate who has uh, declared uh, his support for the NPP. It means that the NPP is set to retain a slim margin. Uh, of of the majority in parliament as well. Uh, So today we want to take stock of it. We want to reflect on what the uh, outcome means for Ghana's democracy uh, and also reflect on some of the challenges that uh, were recorded in the election uh, and to see uh, ways by which Ghana's electoral politics and the electoral system uh, could be improved. Uh, And um, as usual, I have my uh, usual uh, parties here. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have Mame uh, today, 
but we Oliver has finally joined us. So Oliver, welcome back. How's everything? It seems like there's a shuffling of chairs between Mami and I. Well, <laughs> she, I'm, I am back, and she, she's not here today. I'm fine. I'm doing, I'm doing well. Uh, it, it's, it's sad that we've had a, a, a long and spirited conversation prior to actually getting on record to, to talk about this. But I, I'm looking forward to, to an engaging conversation as well. So, so the rumor last week was that you didn't show up because um, you couldn't be at your best behavior. Uh, when Cordio uh, came, what do you say to that? <laughs> I, I think, I think, I, no, I think generally it's fair. I don't, I'm not going to credit Cordio for bringing out the West in me, but I'm, I'm never on any good behavior anyway. So that would have been expected in any case. Uh, but yeah, but I, I was sad to miss it. I went back to listen to it. It, it seemed really, really interesting and informative. I wish I, I was able to join you guys. Okay. And Papa, uh, I know you've been following the results keenly uh, and in some of our informal conversations you've you've had a lot to say uh, how how are you feeling about the verdict so far about the verdict <laughs> i have no feeling about the verdict i mean yeah it's, but I, i'm doing okay um do you want me to start no you don't have to start i okay. just want to want you to tell the listeners how you are feeling uh, no, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I have a, you know, I have a generally positive feeling about the election. Okay. Generally positive feeling about the election. Um, and, and what about Otain? I, I, I am not too. I am not too happy about the post-election uh, events. Uh, particularly involving the police and 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 some supporters of NDC I am not like from from last week I'm generally not very happy about some of the errors that were made uh, I think the EC could have done better uh, but by and large it appears that even with all the scrutiny and all the independent auditing that may be done, uh, the elections, there's the general consensus that the results of the elections will be the same. But in terms of the constitutional democracy uh, and, and maturation of the EC and the things that we look forward to hearing the EC validate. Uh, I think that the EC has not done the best that they could possibly do. And, and, and this is something that I'm also looking forward to hearing from Oliver to, to, to speak his mind on the performance of the EC and stuff like that. But yes, uh, otherwise I am well and looking forward to a very lovely episode. Okay, thank you. So, Oliver, um, where do you think the, this election take us uh, in our democratic journey? What does it reflect in the progress we've made so far, and what does it tell us in terms of where we are heading? Uh, I, I think what we've seen in this election reflects perhaps 
that the standards by which we judge the electoral process and what we consider as successful elections need to evolve. It seems to me that we're still stuck by the same standards that we have applied to judging elections and how elections should be conducted from 1992. So the question of whether or not there, were, there was violence or whether ballot boxes were stolen and as a measure of whether we have had a good and successful election, we've, we've moved past that stage. The demands of citizenry and of the sort of expectations we need to have of, electra, of the electoral commission of all the political stakeholders also needs to evolve with the process in which our democracy is going. And, and in a way, it's, it's, it's a good and bad, right? It's, it's, it's a sense that things are getting better generally in Ghana. But it's also a sense that even as we're getting better in it, the metrics by which we judge what is better hasn't evolved significantly to, to, to enable us to take proper stock of what we need to do to continue to progress. And I think that this gets a bit to perhaps a sentiment about what has happened which is when he's talking about the post-electoral circumstances. So if I, if I want to generally set the framework and invite others to come into the conversation, I think the, the way in which we view the election process, it needs to go beyond the voting day and the, the, vote, the act of voting itself, but it must entail all the processes that this involves. And so if we are looking at whether or not there has been instances, widespread instances of violence and ballot box stealing and incidences like that, we have not seen that. And so on that score, we can say that the election itself has by that metric been successful. But there's been so much that has happened in this election that must give us a reason to pause. It must give us a question to reflect on whether or not institutionally the right the right things were put in place and the right things were done for us to have the kind of re election that reflects our democracy. And I'm thinking mainly about questions of transparency about how the coalition, coalition process went. I know that certain election observers have, have already raised this, this issue in reports that have been written on it. There are also questions about decisions, administrative decisions that were made by the Electoral Commission that could substantially disenfranchise certain people of Ghana going to the next the, the the next parliament question issues which i have i i i believe portends the end of the fourth republic as we know it because of re, what what is in essence a regulatory uh overthrow of the constitution and we I will get a bit more into that as we go forward so on a general sense i think that if i'm taking any theme from this i would say that the standards by which we continue to judge the, the electoral commission and election, election process need significant revision. And I don't know whether Oting had any thoughts directly on this point. I mean, exactly. I mean, uh, last week, these things, these matters came up and I know Papa has a diff entirely different view on it and I would love to hear him speak on them. But the manner in which certain errors were made by the Electoral Commission, the that is understandable in an election like this and trying different uh, way of aggregating uh, 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 aggregating votes and aggregation aggregating the results. Um, I mean, yes, if you make mistakes, that's that's fine. We all make mistakes. Uh, it's another question saying that for such a sensitive matter and a close 
election, you should be very careful that you prevent all such errors before a declaration. But then when you've made those mistakes, you, 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 you treat them seriously and correct them in a manner that will engender, uh, uh, generate trust. And I don't think the Electoral Commission has done that, particularly when you look at the, the results. What was originally declared on the 9th uh, in substance change in the release that was um, uh, made by the Electoral Commission the following day uh, in the number of votes obtained by each, uh, each, each, each candidate, and in the percentages and all that, it it is it it is something serious that I think the electoral commission should go beyond the um, uh, a mere press release to explain, so that you will still maintain the trust of the people, and then you will avoid any mischief because. In, in the errors that were made, some analysis of it in promoting party interests, you, you listen to those analysis and you realize that uh, they, they, there is some mischief in there. You could avoid all these things by properly coming back to correct the errors you made and explain how the errors came about. But I know, Papa, you you have different view about why it's it, it you can you can you can draw from some of these incompetencies as you you describe them to just still maintain a certain level of tension that will not boil over. And I, if you want to talk about that, that would be good. Um, no, I, I'm not going to talk about that. But let me let me start by saying that the um, I have a different emphasis, but it does not mean that I disagree with you guys fundamentally, right? So I have a different emphasis. My emphasis is that big picture, the elections went well. Mm -hmm. Nothing has happened in this election except perhaps the decisions relating to Guam you know, the Guan issue mm -hmm. that has not happened in our elections before. That we have not had an opportunity in our elections to address, whether it is errors in the final declaration or it is disturbances at polling stations or it is presidential candidates having problem initially accepting the results, you know, Everything that has happened in this election, except perhaps the, the you know, as I said, the Guam case, has happened before. And so we have a way to deal with it. And I think from, from that perspective, this election is no different than any other we have had. So I think that's my, my first comment, that big picture, we have had a good, a good election. Second thing, the, for me, the, the continuing challenge that needs to be addressed is killings during elections. So for me, the national security aspect of elections appears to be something that although if you look at the trend, 
there, there appear to be improvements. I think it is still sh very shameful that people die during our election. And I'm thinking about whether we, we cannot find a way to hold the government in power accountable for deaths that occur on their watch or to hold opposition parties responsible for, for, for um, putting people in harm's way. So this is, this is how I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to think about the national security aspect. And, I, and I'm deliberately separating the operations of the elections from the national security concerns that, that um, emerged during, during the elections. And now we are having it extend to post election challenges and, and uh, almost bordering on, on crisis for the country. So this is my, this is my general framing um, and sense of, of how the election has gone. We must secure the gains we've made in, in how we roll out the elections and not think that we, we cannot go back, you know, we cannot retrogress on those gains if we shift our eye from, from those. But clearly we must pay more attention to the national security concerns during the election and then after the election. I, I have been discussing with you guys um, about whether you know we, we shouldn't have uh, we shouldn't have a, 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 a bigger role for for political parties in the security aspects of the elections, you know. Um, in addition to clearly holding government and government agencies accountable for people dying during the elections, you know, so that's 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 how I will I will I will frame the my view of what has gone on so far. So just to add to all the points that you you've made, uh, I also was very disappointed with the counting and collation aspects. Um, I think that was where most of the problems uh, came from. Um, and uh, it's, it's very unfortunate for me that with all the years that we've had, the experience we've built voting, we cannot just do a simple uh, addition and subtraction, uh, if, if you like. And I thought that was very disappointing but uh, the the point that uh, papa you made about uh, national security i think we need to be a bit more creative uh, in in the way we also set up our electoral system so yes it it is very good that we prefer this open count we want to show this symbolic um demonstration that uh, we are being transparent by having an open count. But I think when I watch what happened in Techiman South, uh, I was wondering whether we need to get people very close to the counting process. Uh, and if we have to maybe think about ways by which we could, yes, be transparent, but make sure that we keep a certain perimeter around which the public cannot get close or maybe some transparent cover to the EC so that when the collation is happening and people feel that it's not going their way, they will not have the means to disrupt 
the the counting process but also to uh, be a bit more imaginative in the way the security services uh, respond uh, because uh, I mean having many people dead as a result of uh, and and I think when you if you watch the video from Techiman South with an open mind uh, both sides of 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 the issue did some wrong I mean when people try to snatch a ballot box uh, it is wrong but we as a country we need to ask ourselves do is the is the penalty for that death or having a gunshot wound and if we could be a bit more imaginative uh, in the way we approach security of our election i think that would be a very good uh, addition um i was also uh, like uh, obtain i was very disappointed with the performance of this ec i know the ec chair person in particular was quite keen to claim that this this was the most effective election and others but i think she fell short uh, and i wouldn't even just focus on the problems with the declaration where she had to come back to correct what she announced um, but i thought the creation of or the introduction of regional coalition centers uh, added uh, a certain layer another layer of unnecessary tension uh, and controversy around the, the coalition process yes regional ECs have a role to play they've always played a role but their roles have always been that of just transmitting certified results to the national coalition center uh, and in the context that if you look at our electoral system regions don't play any significant role in the counting and collation constituency elections are declared at the constituency level uh, and so yes you can justify a coalition center at the constituency and then the ec is the uh, uh, returning officer for the presidential election so you can justify why uh, there's the need for um, a national coalition center but for some reason i think that um, the regional coalition center creation as well intentioned as they may be is quite unnecessary and that and that the resources could be better uh, used and applied to the national uh, and constituency coalition uh, centers um and uh yes i i i also thought that uh the approach of the ec chair uh, in addressing the concerns from the opposition uh, was also a bit um, not impressive um, yes it is the responsibility of the ec chair to count and declare but she it is also incumbent on her to reach out to all sides um, uh, not necessarily to secure their approval because nobody would approve uh, an election that didn't go their way but to be seen to be demonstrating leadership and consensus it's a very important bit and i don't think she demonstrated that uh, and in that regard i i also found quite a lot of problems there and i and, uh, quickly, yeah can okay. i quickly just you know follow up so I, I couldn't understand why in some places this you know when you know you're going to be counting votes after 6 p.m that 
lightning, lightning, lighting, sorry, was poor. Exactly. That you didn't have any plan of securing the premises where the counting was happening. The polling state, you know, the polling area, the polling station where counting was happening, that there was no plan of securing it, that you didn't have any plan of securing the movement of, you know, polling uh, material from polling stations to the coalition centers at the regional level. You know, these, I thought that these would be something that you will pay particular attention to as part of the, so this is the, you know, the beginning of the security arrangements, you know, of the election. So those those were things that surprised me that we, we didn't have a lot of and, and, attention and, and, paid there. Just to and, also add to that. I mean, you the know, last was, thing, yeah. yeah. The, the last you, thing, and that you did not have saving of lives of citizens as the, the prime, you know, leading motivation for your security operation during during the election process you know i mean I, I think this is something that we really must pay attention to next next time you can come in i i have something yeah. to say about the regional coalition thing but and, and and then also just to add reinforce that point i i thought you know the the i followed the media coverage and one of the things that struck me was uh, that day there was a lot of rains, right? In the Volta region, in particular. In, in the Volta region, and you, you, so involving uh, less electoral institutions, institutions that we don't usually associate with voting and others, like the uh, meteorological service. Yeah. Uh, if they had for, given a forecast to say that it's we are likely to have rains then that would then inform the sort of creativity in the way you set up some of these polling stations to make sure that uh, that problem. So there, there, there's quite a lot to learn, I think, uh, from from the uh, voting. Uh, I know oh. Otin wants to come in, but let me just yeah. respond to Nelson's point about the regions. So I agree with Nelson and Otin in respect, because I know Otin has that, acquiesces to that view as well. <laughs> but I I, I agree. I agree to the extent of the principle of do no harm. So if creating new constituencies will create new tensions and you know, then there's no point because we are building and we're building efficiencies in, in, with regard to the polling station to strong room arrangements that we had, you know. So to that extent, I will agree with I'll, I'll agree with you guys. But I do not really see that you know, demystifying the strong room thing and sending it to the regions for more ownership at that level per se creates more bureaucracy or more tensions or, you know, perhaps there's a way to do it that will be better if that is the way we should go, we think about it, and deal with only 16, you know, summary sheets or whatever it is and give people more opportunity and build more competencies in the region. But to the extent that you are not ready for it and that you have actually caused harm, then then I agree with you guys that it was not it was not necessary. If if, if you couldn't do it, then don't do it. And I think that it it goes to even a bigger picture about 
our decentralization process and the role of regions, regional administration in our whole decentralization processes and our development uh, paradigm. Because we have our decentralization is such that development authorities are set up at the district level. You have this district development entities and offices. And the manner in which the regions come in as a coordinating unit of all the districts in, in uh, all the development plans in the district, and then aggregates at the level of the National Development Planning Commission is one thing that has been an ongoing a subject, subject to an ongoing discussion and debate. But the point that uh, uh, Nelson makes is very important. In our electoral architecture, there is nothing at stake at the regional level. We are not voting for anything the regional level. So why do you introduce as that level of bureaucracy? And it, it, it just adds to the mystery of election, uh, vote counting, which from this election has become the most obvious and most important problem that we have to solve. Because on the election day itself, yes, one or two skirmishes here and there, in, in the central region and other places. But by and large, the election itself, the actual going to the ballots to go and cast your vote went well. Even during the rains, people stay calm in their queues and went to vote, all right? And, and then after voting, then we start hearing all the skirmishes come up. And it is because there's so much mystery that we attach and associate with the counting of vote because that's where all the perception of Reagan comes in. And if you don't reduce the number of centers that you are actually going to will be involved in that vote counting and vote aggregation, this problem will, we will face this problem in another four years. Yes, I can understand the point that the EC want this to be done at the regional level so that at the national centers, like you rightly said, Papa, we deal with only system primary sheet. But how are we doing it previously? If previously it was just that we were sending all the uh, pin sheet and constituency results to the EC to one pool in the EC at the national level or the so-called strong room. You can still disaggregate it and in the strong room have, have 16 coalition centers in the strong room so that all the constituency, all the results from Ashanti, for instance, will be sent to the Stromo to a certain focal point just in, in, in charge of Ashanti. And in that strong room, when issues come, the EC, the chair of the EC as the returning officer for the presidential elections and his head deputies are present to resolve it 
right away. But hey, uh, they have you, you just decentralize the tension to 16 regions rather than centralizing it in the strong room. And, and I, room. I, I agree with you that if you were not logistically and you know temperamentally and so on ready to deal with 16 different potential tension points, then you keep making better your one strong room tension point, however you know difficult that arrangement is for decentralization and people owning you know the the election process and not creating some thing gods in some strong room you know deciding everybody's fate that kind of thing mm. so in terms of I, that I, I i want to react as well to the region thing but before i do that i think i want to go back a bit to to tackle two points that papa made uh, in the beginning and then come to this <laughs> No, well, before point, before you make before you make yeah. you go in, can I just make a quick intervention uh, addition? Okay. Uh, to just just on the regional coalition center bit, I, I think uh, what we need is to demystify pink sheets. Uh, I remember in 2012 when the MPP went to court, uh, they even to the point where the Supreme Court had to appoint. Uh, this management consulting firm to look at pink sheets and do an audit. One of the key points of our electoral architecture is that voting and winning happens at the polling station. That is the fundamental principle. And I think if there's any capacity that the EC wants to build, I think, is to build its capacity to be able to churn out res polling station results with the pink sheet live for every Ghanaian to assess it the moment they are counted and declared yeah. at the polling station. So that we don't even need to have joy. Strong FM rooms and regions. And strong <laughs> the moment you count at, say, that they are, say, LA Middle School. Uh, polling station, the EC's capacity to then declare that result on a website or on a platform where everybody can assess, including the so-called pink sheet, that will enable every Ghanaian. So now the uh, NDC is disputing this election, but they claim that their pink sheet is telling them something different from what the EC pink sheet is supposed to be and what the NPP pink sheet you can kill that mischief right away. If the EC, the moment the pink sheets are available, you make it publicly available for everybody. So that the average person, I've seen the EC has released pink sheet of regional coalition centers. What is the use of that? It still does not address that fundamental problem of where, which, who, which candidate got what vote at what polling station. And that is what I think if they have resources and they have people who can build that system where everybody can assess the polling station vote in real time, that will kill all these tensions about, because coalition is just addition. Okay, Nelson, let me, let, me, let me ask you this quick question. I know we have discussed this informally before, and I agree with you. My only fear is that because that is the primary source of data, all right, transparency is good, 
but how do you secure that print sheet such that when you upload it, for instance, online, it is not manipulated to any to the advantage of any side? Because the moment you put your electoral system and electoral machinery to the internet, then you should be prepared to, to face the challenges of cybersecurity right now. And in very few places, I, I don't know of any country that really goes full force that way. So India. how do, okay. So how do you secure your pain sheets? So I'm, I'm still, I'm not, I agree. You see, doing that still wouldn't stop you from doing the manual processes that we do. It still doesn't stop you. You, you still do the count. What I'm saying is that the moment you count at the polling station, mm -hmm. the easy and, and all the cybersecurity issues, yes, they are there. That is why I'm saying that, and that is why I said if the EC has the resources, instead of spending that on regional coalition centers hmm. and recruiting new officers and all that, what they have to do is to build their capacity and the capacity, I'm using capacity broadly in hmm. terms of being Cyber able to deliver that. and all that. Hmm. Exactly. Okay. You know, and, and, and that, for me, that is, we need to demystify pink sheets. And remember when Afarijan went to court, uh, when the MPP, during the MPP petition, there was something he said. He didn't, he wasn't too articulate about it, so people didn't pick it. But he was saying that, one, people, even the name pink sheet is misleading. Because in the past, sometimes the sheets were green, sometimes they were yellow. Um, I, that it it so happened that that year they were pink sheet, and so he was like even the name pink sheet, and then he made another point that the the essence of the pink sheet isn't any it's just a record of the count, and if you think of that as a count, then this sort of exclusive, as if only some special people ordained by God can get hold of the pink sheet. And once they get it, nobody has to see it. it, it, it that shrouds the whole process in secrecy. And it, with, that, with that secrecy, then that's where you get all this conspiracy. Because the moment the EC comes and says, we've collated 16 regions, this candidate got this, but then the following day they change it, but then they say, oh, it changed because Eastern region, we got some extra votes. How do you justify that? If you had that, if, if you had published all the polling station and people could see it was a glaring mathematical error, then that can be fixed without anything. The moment you fix it and you shroud all these things in secrecy, then you then make people wonder what, what else is missing. What I'm saying is that we need to demystify the pink sheet. We need to demystify the collation processes by investing in capacity where the EC is able to generate polling station results in real time. So that all the part, you know, the media, the moment they declare, 
they can refer to something and say, the EC has also declared that. And I think that is the change we need because as you, we've, we've all made the point that the problem isn't voting. The problem isn't turnout. Ghanaians love to vote. They, they are very decent people. They vote. But when you vote and you go home, you want to trust that the system that we have will be able to count your vote and make it counted. And at the moment, I think that that is what is not happening. Uh, Oliver, sorry, I uh, I wanted to make a quick intervention, but it's been long. No, uh, I, I mean, I, I was also wanting to, to talk about the, the region thing at the end of my intervention so that we don't, we, it doesn't keep uh, coming back to that point because there's substantive points I wanted to make regarding Papa. So maybe I'll just front load the, the 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 regional conversation and then come to the proper points i wanted to make uh, so quickly i mean i i I'm, I'm generally in agreement with the sentiment about the about the propriety of the introduction of the regional questioning here and but i do i do i don't know i perhaps i'm a bit closer to papa on this so generally as we and perhaps there's something that will come to when we talk about the one issue for some reason, the constitution creates some regional logic about elections, which is which is implicit and not necessarily clear. So this whole idea about constituencies not straddling regions, it doesn't the the the, the reason why or the it's not particularly clear as to why the framers decided to to recommend that framework. As we have said, the regions have no particular relevance with regard to how they set up. Uh, constitutional setup is or perhaps administrative setup is and so introducing that point on a minute level when we are not we don't have any regional elections doesn't seem to make any particular sense but in any case it is what it is that regions constituencies do not straddle regions so for which reason there's some regional uh, perhaps there's some regional issue that comes to play when we think about elections generally now i agree with the idea of decentralizing points of, of sentence of tension. I've said this even clearly when I came to when we we're talking about the EC's mandate about trying to avoid accumulating points of contention in, in a single institution. So in that same sense, being able to decentralize the points of contention in a way in, in that way I think builds confidence in the process. I think we are saying we're all speaking the same language. But I, I if but I don't think that one should be done without the other. So I don't think that the, the way to having a regional coalition center is to deprive access to the polling station resource directly to citizens so that you don't provide them with only regional resource and they have no way of verifying those regional collated resource. You know? so, so that's where I think there's a bit of this thing and I wanted to say that, but I think those points have generally been expressed. Uh, coming to the, the pop-up issue, there's one point where I am, I am completely in agreement with and the other one where I, I, I have to depart from you. On the first point, I, I also do not understand why our elections would always have to entail the death of citizens. It, interfering in the election processes is a misdemeanor offense. It is, not, it is not something that at every year we continue to excuse security forces killing fellow Ghanaian citizens over the election process. It is completely unhelpful to, to the way in which we want to grow. And the fact that our elections continue to result in the death of people delegitimizes the process in some sense for me, irrespective of how it goes down. In every other in, in every other situation, we're able to dispassionately assess whether the use of force was appropriate and whether it was justified. 
But for some reason, when it comes to elections, all, all bets are off. And any use of force is, is not subject to control or question. Because for some reason, we believe that if one polling, if one ballot box is stolen, votes cannot be reheld in that constituency to clarify the issue. When we, when the, I mean, in this last election, the Senate West situation, we had one ballot box which had to be secured and later counted in court. It is not a, it's not a process out of this world. As long as elections are segregated and we've not had these situations whereby out of 3,000 police stations, 1,500 police stations, people are stealing ballot boxes in thousands. So that we see that this is a, a huge problem for our election, election security, you know. So I think there's a there's a problem there that we need to to have that conversation with ourselves and tell ourselves that nobody should lose their life, and that's not a price to pay for for securing our elections. The way I disagree then with Papa is about the point of assessing the EC's performance on the basis of the fact that, well, the problems that we see now are problems that have happened in the past, and so for which reason it is it is fine. And, and that there's, there's no significant issues there. I think that's where the problem gets to. Because it also gets to even, the, it also contradicts your own point about death around the election. Because it's also a feature of our elections consistently. So the fact that I am unable, perhaps the only innovation we're talking about the EC in this election is the regional coalition centers, which have already resulted in more problems than they have resolved. Say something about what lessons is the EC taking from the past and what, what is it resolving? Because we cannot say that these problems have happened in the past and they can happen, they've happened again. The question has to be, what has the EC solved in this new election? And, and it's sad to me that in an election where the beauty of what the results have been, which is the fact that we have, we have parity in parliament for the first time between two, two of the major political parties, 137 and 137, with one independent candidate in the mix, is such an interesting point for what it portends for our, our, our democracy that we are not even having that conversation. You know, the fact that we, we and we're having a situation whereby the, well, I don't know, I think since 1996, no, since 1992, this is also the first time again that a candidate is refusing to, to concede in an election. The significance of that is something that we need to discuss. Because even in even in the last election, can you correct yourself? This is not the first time. This is not the first time a candidate is refusing to concede in an election. I said in, since nineteen since nineteen ninety two, the nineteen ninety two elections. Apart from that, all the other elections. In 20, 2012, Kufado, it it took the Supreme yes, Court. Yes, he did concede. I agree, but he did concede. Yeah, but he did but, concede. But in this particular case, we don't have. In that case, he said that I don't agree with the results, but I'm going to court. In this case, the person is not saying I'm going to court. The person is saying that the elections were the the, the, reason, the results of the election were fictional and doesn't say anything about conceding on the presidential elections or going to court or using legal processes. If you follow, if you listen carefully to the speech, the only grievances they raised were at the parliamentary level, but the presidential one, after saying that the election results were were fantasy did not say anything about what the next move is at the presidential level. But he and still what the, has the time. He, has, he still has the time. He still has the time so this, for this, filing. So that's, I agree. So at this fair, at, this, at, at least in the first instance, the intention to file was clear. In this case, we don't have it. And I think that this, uh, even this conversation is something that would be so interesting for talking Ghana to be talking um, to be discussing about and looking at it and, and, the, and, and what it means, right? But we are not having all of that. Because the EC has brought, has put itself in the center of the conversation. And in an election where 
the, as long as the issue becomes the topic of the conversation, I think they have already failed. And, and you see, you see, and I'm not too sure whether this is a matter that should even go to court. If I, I think that we can save ourselves two months, three months, whatever the court process, any petition in court will take us and the tension that in itself will generate. And the, and the, and the way, like in 2012, the economy came to somewhat of a standstill uh, because investors and other people did not know how things were going to turn out and stuff. We can save ourselves all that. If, 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 because I still believe that the results of the presidential elections and the way things have churned out, I still believe that it's a strong message from Ghanaians that we want setting checks and balances on, on the MPP and Nanado. And I believe that Nanado will still win, even with the most uh, rigid scrutiny with the way things have pan out. But we could save ourselves all that if they let EC and the parties agree, and the EC will be willing to at least take all the pinchic again and let's re-collate all the pin sheet to be absolutely certain that the figures that we have given are right. But that can, that, can prevent that, the that EC is, from doing exactly that, is, right? And that has like, already so been done. Have an administrative, no, administrative that has not process been done. That, that, no, that has been done. That has been done. So how did they come to the declaration? That has not been done following the declarations when there have been inconsistencies no, in but the inconsistencies came about as a result of the internal verifications. How did they come up with the missing figures? It so so this idea of some verification as if it has to be a completely different process. Doesn't the NDC need to tell us? You see, our elections, and again, going back to the point I made about polling stations, the NDCs. Uh, an MPP had polling station, uh, polling agents all over the country. Mm -hmm. The polling agents were given copies of the pink sheet. Mm -hmm. So the NDC as a party has access to their own pink sheet. Mm -hmm. What did they find when they did their addition? And 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 as Oliver said, when uh, uh, ex-president Mahama gave that speech. He said from their own coalition in Techivan South, they should have won by, I think, 2000 and something. I can't remember the exact number they gave. But what is the NDC's coalition from the presidential election, from the pink sheet that their polling agents uh, received? And remember at the Supreme Court, in 2012, the, the judgment that was given over the 2012 election petition, the court actually made reference to the role of polling station, uh, uh, polling agents of parties. Mm -hmm. They are so, an intrinsic part of the count. What did the NDC find from their pink sheet? And they should also show us the discrepancy from their pink sheet results and what the EC has already put out. No, I that agree is, with you. 
I agree that with you. That is what okay. how you resolve this. You okay. cannot you cannot okay. you but cannot then, say the but, but, go back and do what it has But this is the problem. This is the problem with with what you're saying. Me, I have no skin in this. All right. But I am concerned with the legitimacy of the results when the EC makes multiple mistakes and all they say is that we made mistakes or they don't even say that. All we see that the numbers have changed. And, and then we are to accept that some internal verification process took place and they, they observe that uh, uh, there, there were errors and so they've corrected the errors. It's okay. It's, so, it's, so just to no. So, back. I think I think the point. So, before you come in, okay. Yeah. I think that the difference, perhaps, what I was understanding, agreeing with what Tim was that I, I agree with you completely that the the NDC needs to come up with what figures they have and where they think the problems are. The problem is that the EC itself has closed itself to having that conversation, and that the posture is always go to court if you have any problems. So that I think I think that. Even the NDC is coming up with anything. I don't, at this point, they haven't given any indication of this, at least on the presidential level, that they have any problems and what they, where the problems are. But when they, when they do have that, there has to be an avenue to have that conversation. Pesa uh, White, and I don't know who, had talked about before the election declarations were made, she had had a conversation with the EC chair, where the EC chair had said they should arrange a meeting between herself, Pesa White, uh, who was, I think, the, who was in the National Coalition Room on behalf of the NDC and John Mahama, and then, and when they had a conversation, he went up out to call John Mahama. They tried calling the EC chair. The next, her phone was completely off. The next thing they saw that she was announcing the results. And, and, and so those are the significant issues that need to the conversation. But Oliver, that's, that's, that's all that. As for that claim, I mean. Yeah. It, it, it was the claim has not been quite, contradicted. It, it was quite the clear from the beginning at some point that they were so not happy and they wanted to leave. And so that claim, I'm not too sure where so that's that... the thing. No, that you see this for me, as like like uh, Nelson said, that the role of polling station, uh, polling agents, both at the local level and also the fact that we have people within the the, the strong room and the collation centers bring speaks to a certain representativeness that we want the whole entire process to have. Now, if these people who are agents of the party say that our last conversation with the EC, she said she wanted to have the conversation and discuss those grievances with us. And we were making attempts to sit down and have that conversation. And then next thing we know, she goes about and declares the results. And you haven't replied as to whether that the veracity or otherwise of that claim, then that's a big issue. But but it, it seems to, that claim seems to be contradicted by the fact that in the coalition sheets, at least the system coalition sheets that have been yeah. released, there seem to be the signature of the NDC representative appended, and and then in the even in the strong room, uh, yeah. Roger some Metal of the results are not for others. Uh, Roger Metal Nunu seem to have signed some. So I understand. Yeah. I understand the point. Yeah. But, and I also agree with you, Nelson, that the NDC must come out clearly to come and tell us what is it that your Absolutely. patients are telling us. Absolutely. You can't just throw this out in there and then This generate, is my point exactly, see, generate, about when the president says that the election results are fa fantastical or fantasy and doesn't say what about the presidential. Because I, I, on the parliamentary, they did that. 
They said that the lawyers are going to be in standby and vetting all of that. That is responsible. But for the presidential to not say what your grievance is and what you're going to proceed and refuse to concede, I think that is irresponsible. I think and, on, and, and on what, presidential, what, what, they have what, already it, mentioned, or on presidential, they have already mentioned something that appears like overvoting or at least questionable numbers for the president in five constituencies in the Ashanti region. So they, they, they mentioned that. I think even, even President Mahama, I think, if, if just, I recall correctly, no, in the, but, in the speech, mentioned but, about the presidential. Pardon but, me. It was about the parliamentary. But they said something about the presidential. They, they've said something like that. But Papa, if you compare it with the way they are meticulously going about the parliamentary, what comes across from the NDC is that, to me, in my mind, what comes across from the NDC seem to be that they are so sure about, about what they are saying about the five constituencies right. that they are challenging. But they seem not to be very clear and they are then leaving it to the chances of the AC's errors. But, but in, I think in, the strategy the is process. also that in, in Ghana, so far, if you win a certain number of parliamentary seats, you win Accra, you know, you are, you are winning the presidency. I, I, I think the idea is that we cannot win the five we are challenging without winning the presidency. I think it, but that's more a perception thing that is being thrown out there mm-hmm. as part of the strategy than reality. So that's how but, I but see, you see the uh, there, thing there, going. Can I quickly, some... can I quickly yeah. you know, just respond to Oliver that, you know, I did not say that it was fine. I said, because these things have happened in the past, there is a way to deal with them. So I didn't want to go on and discuss them because there's already a path. Because in 2012, we, we, we saw during the court process that Afarijan's declaration of the, num- of the total number of votes was wrong. But we, he only posted it on the website, the correct number. And when he was challenged in court, then he said, even, yes, this is the correct number, but it will not affect the result. And I, have, I didn't come back and amend it. I just put it on the website. You know? so, and I'm sure that if we go back, there will be some one or two things that you know people without they have had to correct and so on. But I think overall those things did not impact the results. So my, my idea was not to say that because you know the errors or the things that are happening now have happened in the past, it's okay. My point was that I, I didn't want to dwell on them because there's a way we have there's some right. kind of precedent in dealing with them. The the other thing about how to deal with it, the concerns relating to the EC. I, I think because the EC is um, a constitutional body, but you know, uh, regulated by law, I, I don't know how they can reopen the process and conduct these audits. W- 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 what, I think the, what I think should happen is rather that there should be, if, this, if the tensions continue and there's some evidence from the NDC, but they still don't want to court. So they still don't want to go to court and it's creating some tensions, perhaps some people's commission, you know, the presidential commission to do. No, 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 I don't know. No, 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 no. Look at the chorus. Look at the chorus. Yeah, listen to the chorus. The foresters. We don't need, we don't need, we don't need that presidential commission. There's nothing preventing the EC from having an administrative review process in place 
Nothing I'm sure they will do that internally. I think that's what Nelson and, is saying. I'm sure they, they will do that. They've but already it will not satisfy, done that. It will not satisfy but, anybody. But I, I have, come on, I have a controversial view on the question of court. And, no, no, and just, just, let, before that. you go to court, before you go to the okay. court, let me just make two quick points, two very quick points. Uh, I think that, I, just to make the point I, again, the EC has shown his the EC since the devastating and unpardonable error that they made in the declaration. I think we should also acknowledge that they have released the regional pink sheets. And so that is part of that process of demonstrating a certain openness in the in the coalition. My only plea to them is that they should not just release the regional uh, pink sheets. They should release all the polling station uh, results and let the NDC also release what they consider. Because remember, Mahama declared victory on the on the on the night of voting and urge his supporters to jubilate what did was he, the basis of that yes what was the basis of that uh, um, you know let we've won what on what basis did it so they have to show it as the ec's only uh, responsibility in this for me is for them to release all the polling station results let the average Ghanaian who is interested pick up a calculator and add all the pink sheet results and let's see whether they tally with what the eventual declaration is. And then the other point about this perception that Papa was referring to that the NDC seems to have uh, that anytime there is a um, you, you perform in parliament uh, the way they have then that correlates in some changes in the presidential i think it's it is something that doesn't tie in with the history so long especially with nana kufuado remember in 2008 the ndc won majority of parliament but they didn't win the 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 first presidential election actually in the first presidential election Ekufado outperformed yeah. professor mills it was when it went to runoff that it 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 changed you've forgotten uh, that the ndc started crying that the elections were stolen because nana had won the presidential but they had won the parliamentary and you, if you remember Accra was so chaotic that yes. people had to you run see, that's that's so, so the, the ndc's argument persist yeah. from 2008 and, and that is actually, the fundamentally flawed nature no no that's not actually true the ndc is not credible on this point in the last elections when it turned out that they were losing the president they were losing they were losing the elections they came out their communicators came out and say that oh wow we have an interesting governance arrangement i remember those words that they have taken the parliamentary and we have taken the presidency that's what they were saying in those elections so it's never been it's always been a sense that they want to they, they don't really believe in the genuineness of the claim that once you win parliamentary, you have won presidency as well. Because in the last election, that's what the claim they were making was that they have retained the presidency, but that the MPP has won for the parliamentary election. And and and, and the point is that Ekufuado, for some reason, seems to always outperform uh, MPP MPs uh, since since he started running in 2008, 2008 2012. Um, this election, twenty sixteen. 
he seems to always outperform MPs. And I think um, it, it is a reflection of his leadership. And it doesn't reflect, maybe you can say popularity. He's very popular. <laughs> how I, I, he manages, I was going to disagree with you, but sure. Yeah, how he manages internal party processes um, and, and the, all the problems that we saw with the uh, MPP primaries where people were imposed uh, on certain constituencies. And we will get there. But I think that there is a wider trend especially with Akufuado as a candidate, where he seems to outperform uh, consistently uh, his MPs in, in Parliament. But I just wanted us to move the conversation to another area, uh, which is to... Oliver wanted to say something about the Constitution. No, knowing Oliver, he's going to say it anyway. So <laughs> when you say, when you speak... Can you lead us into a conversation about what actually happened in terms of the parties, the performance in the election? You know, let's let's get to, to that kind of discussion as well. So, so okay. So let's talk a bit about perhaps it takes uh, from the our own prognostics uh, the day before the election that we had that conversation where we're generally expressing our views as to what the the elections might look like. I think on, on a general point, we were we were all on point, I think, that we believe that the elections was going to be competitive, even though things pointed to the to the likelihood of a, of an of, of an MPP win. I think that's what we are seeing now. What we all did not avert our minds to was the conversation about parliament. And I think it's that's I would say reflects badly on us because we we didn't really we were over focused on the presidential that we didn't have substantive conversations about the parliamentary elections. Now, that, that point being conceded, I think, you know, I, I, I think it's an interesting point for the first time that we have a situation where both the MPP and NDC in parliament have the same number of, of votes. Again, I'm conceding the fact that the NDC is still contesting a number of, a number of constituencies, but to the, to the extent that the EC's declaration is some prima facie evidence of what we have, we have 137 on the part of the NDC, 137 on the part of the MPP. Now this has raised, I know, interesting conversations informally between us as to who gets to be parliamentary majority leader, who gets to be parliamentary uh, minor, my, my minority leader. And then perhaps you can come even into questions around who gets to be speaker and whether the speaker can even be removed and what's what circumstance. So my, my general, uh, position on the on the matter is that we do not have a majority leader and we do not have a minority leader. Uh, and even if the independent candidate that we currently have chooses to do business with either side, it does not create a majority in any of them. Now, the question even as to whether or not they can choose to do business is something that is contentious because the constitution makes it clear that when a person is elected into parliament as an independent candidate, they cannot join another party, whether the party is in parliament or outside of parliament. So then that raises the question as to whether or not they can form informal or formal alliances while in Can parliament. you clarify on By what provision is that? I, uh, so, they, they, so they, the there's a talk. There's a talk about switching parties, but I'm, I can't but educate our listeners on with the provision. There is a provision. 
on independence. So let me pull it. Let me. Let me I, let me I, I hope you are not going to read the constitution. Talking Ghana, we are so, not. So let me just. Uh, yeah, so we are not going to. I mean, but it, I mean, the, the, the provision talks about. So just a parties And also, the election. The, when it's an independent candidate who is elected into parliament as an independent candidate, they cannot join a party. Okay. Without the without constituency being declared as vacant. Mm hmm. So, but so they can join. Issue. They can join a caucus. So in this case, they can, there's nothing about the caucus in in parliament. Now the question has been by parliamentary practice for some reason. And something first of all, we need to think up. We need to know the genesis of why even we have that provision in the constitution. In the constitution, because it goes back to the Nkrumah regime, whereby opposition members in parliament, for fear of reprisals of whatever form, started cross capitating and joining the CPP when they were in parliament. So it was. It is a way to cure that mischief that we have that coming from them. Now, in this particular in this particular situation, the question arises as to whether or not the independent member of parliament, who was formerly a member of MPP, can join or form a, a caucus with the and and with the MPP. Now, by parliamentary practice, what the parties have done is that uh, usually when independent members of candidate uh, independent uh, candidates are elected into parliament, they are asked to elect on which side of parliament they will sit, whether they are sitting with the majority or they are sitting with the minority. Now, I have generally believed that this practice is wrong because as, as elected independent candidates, they are automatically in the minority and ought to sit on the minority bench. Now, in the past, it hasn't been too problematic even if they chose to sit with the minority because all the independent candidates, even if joining the minority, would not overturn the majority in parliament in whatsoever way. In this particular case, the question then becomes, if we accept the notional practice in parliament that the independent candidate can caucus with the, with the MPP, then they will be able to form a majority for the purposes of parliament. But then if the, if the candidate decides, again, Samia and Krumah had that same issue. Whether the, whether the candidate can decide not to caucus with either, either of them. When Samia raised the problem, parliamentarians agreed that they were going to review and revise the standing orders to enable her to sit alone. But that's what, and when she decided to sit with a the, with the minority then, she, she made it clear that she was only doing so till the standing orders were reviewed. As Ghana always is, the standing orders were never reviewed to allow situations whereby independent candidates would not be choose to caucus with any of the with the, any of the candidates. Now, so this is my point. My point is that if the practice of requiring candidates to caucus for the purposes of determining, for determining majority in parliament amounts and practice to a cross-capitating, and that cross-capitating that happens triggers a constitutional implication that they sit out to be declared vacant. That is interesting. But, uh, but I think... As, as a member of parliament, anyone can decide what they want to do in terms of... So if the person Absolutely. says, I'm going to so vote the, with the MPP yes. all the time. Yes. So I, the, I don't the question think, then becomes, yeah. be that when the vote is proposed in parliament, the person can decide to choose where to vote for. There's no question. The person can continue to align their vote consistently with where the MPP votes. Even members of MPP do not, are not required to continue voting for the MPP. And if, if that was the case, if an MPP member votes against the party, a bill presented by the party, then we should say that the MPP has lost its majority. 
But that's not the case. Your voting patterns have nothing to do with the formal question as to which party has majority in parliament. And I realized that our practices also become from the fact that we continue to copy blindly. So the standing orders of parliament itself are copied blindly from, from the UK and other places. So when you look at the definition of minority leader in parliament, it says the party, the leader of the party, which did not form the government. Our members of parliament do not form a government. So where is that coming from? So these are some of the small, small problems that exist in that needs to be fixed. But I, I know that the way in which we rough shot over certain of these questions of, the, of, of substance and practice, we'll, we'll forget about them. So it seems likely that the person is going to join the MPP and, and, and that will say that the MPP has a, a majority in place for, for the election purposes. To make my last yeah. point, even on that practice, when the Samia issue happened, the NDC's majority and minority leader, when saying the number of votes the NPP has, the NDC had, counted the independent candidates as part of the NDC's vote. And the majority leader then, Che Bonsu, corrected them and said, no, you cannot count the persons, minority, the independent majority, minority, minority, independent members of parliament as part of the votes the NDC has as a formal point. But whether or not that formal that formal point will be observed and you go into this election saying that we do not have a majority and we do not have a minority. I don't know whether it's, I, I don't think it will be abided by. Now, to come to the issue of the speaker, sorry again, to come to the issue of the speaker, the practice is that speaker, anybody in parliament can propose a speaker. Even persons outside of parliament can propose a candidate for speaker. There's no mystery to it. There's no requirement that the majority is needed for a speaker to be decided on. The question is whether or not the person, whether within or outside parliament who is proposed for speaker, can garner the simple majority of votes to be elected as speaker. Now, once the person is elected as speaker, the constitution says that they can only be removed with a two-thirds majority. Now, suppose that parliament convenes on the 7th of December, and this issue of the, the issues around the parliamentary seats are not clarified. And the independent member votes with alliance with the MPP to vote with them, for which reason the candidate proposed by the MPP is elected as speaker. If anything changes, if anything changes and the NDC gains numerical majority in parliament because of a review of the elections, they are stuck with a speaker because they will not be able to garner two-thirds majority to be able to overturn whoever is elected as speaker and first deputy speaker. So those, yeah, so those are generally the the bunch of interesting issues and you guys can take it in every direction. Yeah, I think we can say this will, will serve as a, an intellectual feast uh, as we go yeah. on. Uh, this is the first time we have a, 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 a near hung parliament to use. Uh, it is a, a hung Brit parliament. A, a, a British uh, jargon. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it's, it's a beautiful thing uh, in terms of, uh, you know, seeking that sort of balance that we've always sought for. Uh, in terms of accountability, oversight, and others. Because I, to, to be honest, the president of Ghana is too powerful. The constitution has given the president too much power. Uh, and we've always been praying that parliament will live up to its oversight uh, responsibility. So I think th this is great. But, um, and the, the, the many constitutional issues that um, Oliver has raised uh, are very important but i just want us to just look at the outcome broadly of this election uh, and uh, make a comment so papa okay um so i found it 
interesting that the press, the MPP lost Accra. So that's where I start from. And I, and I ask myself why. And, and, and it, 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 if you see where the NDC, you know, kind of either got back some, some seats. And in, in many cases, they got back seats they lost in 2012. But you, 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 you also saw, so the rural, rural Accra, coastal Accra voted NDC massively. And then you see where the MPP usually so does well, the middle kind of middle Accra, you see that the, close, the votes are very close. And I think that is why the NPP lost. So is this, this, I'm wondering, is this from Ejapa? Is this from Amidu? Is this from, so the corruption and the arrogance of the MPP that put off the so-called middle class that oh, that tips you know the votes in favor of the MPP in Accra whenever they have won. So that in this case, they did not vote or voted against the MPP. So Accra was interesting to me. They also lost some seats in the heart of Accra. So that, that was interesting in terms of how MPP has conducted themselves and whether Accra was saying something in that regard. And then you look at Central and the other places where the president won the, 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 the majority, but lost the, the MPP lost the parliamentary. And I'm asking myself, for the parliamentary, for the MPs who lost, why? I, I, I heard from um, a family member who said, in Accra, who said, for the first time, she's going to vote for Nana, but vote for the NDC. It was, it was really straight to hear her say that because she's such a diehard FPP. But she's saying because the uh, uh, Adenta MP has not done anything in relation to development. And this new gentleman who has come around Ramadan, is, is that his name? I think, yes. Is, is um, you know, building rules, I mean, supporting the building of rules, clearing of um, uh, dead rules and so on. So the, the question that comes to my mind is how many of those lost their seats because people felt they did not play a developmental role? And are they supposed to play a developmental role? Does it have anything to do with DCEs being elected who are supposed to be playing the developmental role? Is that question moot now? Should we just say agree that MPs should play a developmental role and not kind of copy <laughs> what exists elsewhere and say they are just they are legislators? Because as a matter of fact, the people perceive them to have to have to play that role. And is it also because they are the ones who interface with the people on in terms of accounting, you know, electoral accountability, that they suffer a certain reaction from the people when it comes to failure of development. So, so th that was, you know, some of the questions that, that came to mind in, in terms of that. If you look at the, and then the, the, the third thing in, in terms of that is policy implementation. So you see the, the areas that, um, oh, the Galamse areas, um, and then you see, you see some areas also in relation to 
um, the implementation of lockdowns. And you want the, the, the issue that, that is, was coming up there was that, well, you, you, it's good to deal with the galamse, but you dealt with it in a way that did not create a replacement of, of jobs. So people felt despondent. And so your, your implementation of policy fell short. And then you suffer the consequence, the consequence for that. So those those are the kind of you know questions that the election it it's it's is bringing to my mind in terms of governance. And and Papa, what you've just said is something that I think for election observers and the CODUs, the CDDs, the IDEX, and all civil society organizations that are involved in this, I think that one of the things that would do as well in uh, in our democracy growing process is to try and institute some kind of exit polling that will figure out these things. I think when the 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 the, 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 the little that I, I followed on some of the analysis, the person that I had make some of the, the analysis you are trying to make here is um, CTFM's uh, uh, morning show host, what's his name? Bernard Abler was trying to do something small for the greater Kral areas in terms of fishing communities and the, the constituencies these communities were and how elections went and trying to bring into play what were the fishing fisheries policies that could have influenced there. And I've heard also Nelson informally also try to make similar arguments in, in the Galamse areas, in the mining communities. And what were the mining policies regarding Galamse? And could it be something that actually influenced the pattern of voting? I think all these things are things that as a nation, we could grow to understand better. And the parties, I, I, I think, must invest in some of these things to try and do some kind of exit polling and see what economic and social factors influence voting and understand what are the patterns of voting so that we will understand what is influencing uh, the net gain by NP N NDC, for instance, or what is influencing the net loss by MPP, and why even with the net gain and the net loss by, by these parties, Nana still won. Is it because that overall, people are happy with Nana as a president and M MPP policies say free SHS? and then want something different at, at the parliamentary level. I, these are things that we can discuss, uh, but we need some more empirical data to be able to say one way or the other, what are the factors that led to the, the voting patterns that came up. But just to- You know, I think- Yeah. I was going to say that, so we have an election where for the first time, perhaps more than half of, current members of parliament are not returning to parliament yes and and and, and that's significant 
But there's a part of me that almost feels like saying it, it serves you guys right. When we're doing a constitution review process and we, 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 we reach out to parliament and engage in the process, there were two demands parliament had. One, that you continue to prevent people with raw citizens from being able to contest for parliament. And two, do not change anything else in the constitution. The question that people, and these were the two, yeah, these were the two clear things they said to us. Now, the, the, the question. When you to, say do not change anything else in there, can you clarify the, that so that let's be. As in, as in there should be no other amendments to the constitution. That there should not be, there should be no amendments to the constitution as it is. The only thing is that whatever we do, gross citizens should not be able to be elected from parliament. The, that's what the subsidiary committee on legislation and constitutional affairs and, legis and legislation or what, I, what the name is sent to, sent to the constitutional review commission. And I say that it almost serves them right because for, for a very long time in our politics, it is clear to us that when people are assessing parliamentarians, it has never been on the basis of what positions they take in parliament. For a long time, even people do not know the voting patterns of people in parliament. There are now very few organizations like Udikru who are now trying to tabulate this for people to know. That the assessment, the reasons for how people are assessing parliamentarians are based on developmental issues over which they have zero control. And the, the, the parliament's response to this has not been trying to find creative ways to put the people like the DCEs in front of electors for those elections to affect them personally. They have not been involved in that conversation. If anything at all, they've tried to obstruct it because of the fear that when they, these people are elected, they would compete with them for certain, a certain level of authority and political authority within the con constituencies. So they've continuously obstructed this. Now, their response to this is that they then created the, the, the common fund of the, the MPs common fund, that this is the way in which we're going to alleviate developmental pressures on them. So if our, if our responses to structural issues in our democracy has been what ways in which we can entrench, our, entrench ourselves and what ways we can continue to give us our money, then these results are likely to continue to happen. So that's my, my general point. If I could make a quick intervention now, because I, I think we've had a, 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 an episode on the dictatorship of the developmentalist discourse. <laughs> 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 but um, uh, without without getting into the, the sort of very philosophical debate, I, I think that this notion that MPs should not be involved in development, I don't know where that, that notion comes from, but it's problematic. Uh, I think when people say that what they are actually referring to is that the DCs, uh, the the MPs, other than the DCs, are not responsible for the actual execution or implementation of development projects. But the fact is, MPs have a very important developmental function within the governance, and communities get that. They expect you to be an advocate for them and your advocacy has to translate into concrete projects so every and uh, uh, the point you made about ctfm i watch so they've actually followed it up with uh, news coverage where they go to constituencies 
and ask people who they voted, why they voted against their MPs. And yes, the development issue comes up. But you see, when you listen to these people, they are not expecting the DC to, uh, sorry, the MP to come and build the road, like physically build the road. But they I expect. They are, they, no, they no, are. no, no, no. They are. They are not. What they expect is for you to be an effective advocate, so that you can bring their developmental concerns to either the minister uh, or to. Uh, the DC, you know, just be their advocate. And I'll give you one classic example. There's one MP who hasn't been affected by all these changes in MPP. And that is um, Kennedy of Japan. When you go to his constituency, what the people there will tell you is that like he's very forceful. He's able to speak for them. He's able to make noise. He's able to put pressure on the president for certain things to happen and he has transformed that place and i think that until mps get this that their role is not to make some laws in abstraction they need to think about their legislative role in a more advocative fashion for the community and that is where those connections and papa you've made this point over and over it's about the connections you make. And I think the MPs who have successfully done that have been able to identify. So when, uh, I, and I've seen MPs who have fought with DCs because they refuse to be able to apply certain things that would translate into concrete projects. And I think for me, if there's, there's any lesson for, for parliament or for parliamentarians, coming out of this election is that the developmental role, their developmental role is very important. And their so it's, it's up to MPs to think through how they could in very innovative ways meet that. And I don't, I reject that view that that means we have to give MPs money for them to then start putting up uh, schools and others. What I think it fundamentally means is that you just have to be a developmental advocate for your community. And if you are not able to do that, then people will think that they need to fall on another person who will be able to uh, speak well and sort of advocate in that. And this this thing happens in the US. Uh, I remember during the, the American election with Senate, um, uh, this was in Michigan, the, the uh, Mitch McConnell made that point very clear that I'm representing Michigan and we are punching about above our weight through various bills that are sent to, to the Senate. They've been able to transform, introduce different things. And this idea that MPs shouldn't even reflect on that uh, is something that really I find very strange in the way we we make this the, uh, the, this argument. Um, and and can, I, can I say something quickly about the connection thing? Yeah. I, I think generally speaking if your government is in power you suffer a certain deficit as an mp so you suffer say one percent half a percent because your government generally if your government is unpopular because it's implemented some policies you suffer that and then you suffer the the thing about whether if, if you are not able to 
build roads. I mean, I agree with Oliver that people actually expect you to build roads. They, they expect you to do things concretely. But Nelson is also right because I take Muntaka and I take Haruna. I, 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 and I follow Haruna's politics a little more closely. But I, I also observe Muntaka from, from afar. He was my neighbor some time ago in Accra. And you see that these, especially Haruna, I mean, I hear that Haruna goes to Tamale almost every weekend. He plays football with the guys. He interacts with his people and comes back to Accra. He's done that for, for the so many years that he has been there. So even if his party is in power, is in opposition or his party is in power and he's not able to deliver roads, it is compensated for by presence, by physical connection and availability. So if you are an MP and you, you know, you sit in a big car, you sit in a car and you speak to the people anyhow you, you know, you want, I think the, these challenges would tsunami you <laughs> at a point. And there will be, so be no far, buffer. You know, you know, one of the challenges about MPs who refuse to go back to the constituency is that proximity creates demand. So that in, in the Ghanaian context, the more proximity with the MPs means that they are, they are externalizing school fees, funeral donations, this thing. Those demands are of, so overwhelming that, and that's one of the reasons why a lot of the MPs want to run away because the, the demand is overbearing. I, I mean, I've I, seen it up and, close and personal. I have seen it also up close and personal, and it is the reason why MPs, in addition to staying in parliament and legislation and deliberating and also doing what Nelson has so eloquently described, will also have to actually practice their full-time, I'm not, full-time job is, is, is not the right way, but whatever profession they belong to, to mix. <laughs> Especially the lawyers. Es, 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 especially the lawyers and so and so they are granted the permission by the speaker to also practice and using lawyers as the example because they also have to make some money to make up for what has been invested into campaigning and then to also make the money to pay for all these externalities that they have to bear because of the level of development and the level of poverty in the constituencies. So it's, it's a little more complicated than, than, than it seems. But, but you see, I would say that, that all, the, all that you, you guys are saying, I agree with you, but that advocacy role of the MP for me is a very important and you see when they are before they become MPs they get this mm -hmm. they get it um and uh, I, I you just wonder what change what change when they I, I, I'm agreeing with you Nelson you know, the, demands, the demands become the, too much the, 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 all that I'm also funeral donations to to, uh, to funeral Donations have been returned to them because it's not enough. Yeah, yes. All that I'm all that all that I'm trying to say is that because of all these uh, other burdens that they have to assume, then they are not able to make time for the kind of advocacy that Nelson you will you will love or the their constituents will love. 
they have to practice a little bit. They have to be in parliament to legislate a little bit. They have to connect by playing football a little bit. And then they have to also advocate a little bit. So the time management becomes an issue for them. You see, in the UK, something happens. The MP will always recruit a caseworker. The caseworker is, you know, and when I studied there, some of my mates actually graduated with master's, PhD, and became caseworkers for MPs. So these are like top, top level but, of candidates. No, I'm coming. And they, they, what they do, what caseworkers do, they just take all the demands. So if, even if it's your fees and everything, you can go to the MP's office and you make that and the caseworker will process them sometimes the caseworker even resolves the issue before it gets to the mp but mostly mps are able to through these processes aggregate grievances and come up with different so i think the advocacy role is very important and just a quick nelson just a quick one you know the the parliament actually tried something like that by Start, they when they commence employing national service beginning with national service yes. i don't know Start how that it, it I, didn't I, work no, out they, the, the mps were using it to to push their relatives and exactly. whatnot without without you know professionalizing it but every i yeah. think every mp needs to set up an office well-resourced staff but, who yes, would then yes. take these things you know and but time is running i, out. I have just, a friend what you were saying i agree like last point, a friend of mine who was working, who, I mean, she, she did law school. She did, she was at Cambridge as well. And she went to work for uh, one of the state senators in, in, in New York as a legislative director. There's a whole office set up with the chief of staff, who's a community, community's liaison person. There's, there's, a, there's a proper setup where you have to deal with, uh, with people. We need, to, we need to build uh, MPs. I, just, just a quick one. Uh, our time is, we've run out of time, but... I just found it very curious um, and and just to deal with a problem that uh, Oliver uh, rightly identified, which is our focus on presidential. And I would even add our focus on MPP and NDC, right? So one of the things that I observed uh, in this election, it, it's very strange when you look at our recent history. So this is the third consecutive election that has presidential election that has been resolved without a runoff so um or even more if i'm not mistaken so uh, 2012 we avoided a runoff 2016 we yeah, avo avoided a runoff uh, despite you know the previous pattern of 2004 we avoided a runoff 2004 we avoided but 2008 there was a runoff yeah so, they they had there used to be this two uh, eight year cycle of runoff which has been broken by the 2016 election and i'm just worried what that means for minority parties uh, mm. because uh, if you look at in the past with people like uh, parkos indium uh, malamisa uh, you know all these from minority parties who found their way into government uh, and also playing a certain role in 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 the runoff you know by building alliances with the bigger parties i just think that we are heading to 
a very strict two-party state. Uh, and I don't know what that means, but we can leave that for another uh, discussion. So, um, so the, the, the good thing is that they will compel the losing party to concede. <laughs> so now that's what they are doing to Mahama. They are saying, look, we all went to the election, regardless of the numbers you got. We have accepted ours, please. Accept yours and let's go in peace. <laughs> that's exactly what they are doing. Yeah. I, don't, I don't even know whether they have that authority to do that. Some of them got less votes than parliamentary candidates. Just terrible. Yeah. 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 And then, and, and for, I'm sure Papa and uh, Oliver and Otin, you have some uh, a soft spot for the CPP. Uh, I I wouldn't want I to. I have always voted at CPP. Yeah, I don't I don't want to. I, I called on people not to. But this been has been a very bad election for people who have been hoping that the CPP will make a comeback. But uh, that that is um, that we can leave that for another uh, session. So thank you very much. Um, um, is this going to be our last session for the year? No, I think we should. I think it would be interesting to have one on like the thirty first because we have to do the Guam thing. <laughs> okay, we have to actually talk about Guam. So. Yes, so we okay. have to do that before the end of the year. So, so, but this is certainly going to be the last before Christmas. So, um, so we're wishing everybody a very merry Christmas and happy holidays. No, I, I actually now I'm wondering <laughs> whether we shouldn't have a Guam conversation. Then have a, a fifteen minutes. You know, like we did for the Jerry, a fifteen minutes Christmas conversation and checking in on our listeners. Okay. But let's okay. see. Let's see. I know everybody will be busy during the Christmas period. Well, I, I, I know too. Oliver has a way of editing. All this will just go down quietly, and then that will be the <laughs> episode. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> we've ended.